After more than 50 years, the United States and Cuba are restoring diplomatic relations. The two countries reopened embassies in D.C. and Havana earlier this week. The U.S. and Cuba severed diplomatic ties amid the Cold War tensions of 1961. The decision to restore those ties with the Caribbean country also brings a push from President Obama to end the trade embargo and normalize relations with the island nation. A lift on the travel ban could result in an influx of American visitors taking their tourism dollars to Cuba. I'm Bob Salzberg of the Herald Times, and today on Noon Edition, we'll speak with experts about what renewal of diplomatic ties means for culture, education, and the country's economies. And we invite you to join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg with the Herald Times along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about uh, U.S. relations with Cuba. Diplomatic ties between the two countries were officially restored this week with each country reopening embassies in the nation's capitals. The two countries severed diplomatic ties more than 50 years ago during Cold War tensions in 1961. With the uh, ties renewed, politicians such as President Obama are now pushing for the trade embargo with Cuba to be lifted, and a U.S. Senate committee yesterday approved a measure that would end American travel restrictions to that country. Today, we're going to be talking with uh, two people who are very knowledgeable about uh, Cuba and all the issues involved with with uh, Cuba. In our studio with us is Mike Erisman, who is the professor professor emeritus of international politics in Latin America at Indiana State University. Uh, he serves as co-chair of the working group on U.S.-Cuban relations, which uh, operates under the Latin American Association. And uh, I hope that we have on the phone um, Gerardo Gonzalez. Gerardo is the former dean of the Indiana University School of Education. Uh, Gonzalez's family immigrated from Cuba when he was young. He now serves as the university's director of efforts to reach out to Cuban higher education institutions. So if you want to join the program today, please give us a call at 855-0811 in Bloomington. That's an 812 area code. You can also join the ch- join us at one 877 285-9348, and you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So thank you for being here. Mike, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming over from Terre Haute. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And I think we have Gerardo on the line, or will soon. Gerardo? Yeah. He's on his way back. I think he's on his way back. I think that was that noise we heard before. <laughs> Gerardo's on the line now. Gerardo Gonzalez, are you with us? Hi. Hey. Uh, hi, Bob. Hi. Uh, sorry, the call somehow got disconnected. But oh, dear. Back. Yeah, well, nice to have you back. Okay, so we want to talk about, uh, you know, what's going on between the United States and Cuba right now. And, and I think I want to start with you, Gerardo, because, you know, your family immigrated from Cuba, as obviously you know. Um, <laughs> 
And yeah, I want to talk talk to you about you know growing up in in Cuba and sort of you know just get your feel for what's going on today. Yeah, well, I was uh, 11 years old uh, when my family and I uh, emigrated to the U.S. And um, I remember you know a lot of um, my life in Cuba, uh, going to school and. Um, remembered uh, the events surrounding the revolution, the, the uh, takeover from Fidel Castro, and then, uh, you know, our leaving um, you know, Cuba to one of the last uh, legal flights uh, uh, between Cuba and the U.S. before the uh, October missile crisis of 62, which then led to the breakdown of uh, Relationship between the U.S. and uh, and Cuba, and so um, you know this uh, surprised me. The new relation surprised me, as I think it did uh, the rest of the world, uh, because uh, it had now has now been well over half a century, about 54 years, since the uh, since the revolution and the relations between the U.S. and Cuba have always been tense. There been there have been periods of time where efforts are made uh, to try to to uh, normalize things but um, but frankly um, none of us have worked and none have gone anywhere near as far as the current uh, efforts have uh, but you know um, I can see both sides of the issue there are a lot of Cuban Americans especially but a lot of people in general who are opposed to the foreign relationship between the US and Cuba because they feel that the Castro regime is a, is a totalitarian state, um, it's repressive, and they feel that these new relationships would just bring economic uh, life back into the Cuban economy and that would only sustain the government. And then there are others who feel that, uh, you know, we have tried over 50 years of Cold War tactics. That has not worked. And the best way to move forward and normalize things and peacefully coexist and bring freedom to the Cuban people is to establish relationship and foster uh, cultural exchanges and people-to-people contact. And that uh, ultimately that would have greater impact than the uh, uh, policy of isolation that the U.S. government has followed through the embargo and, and other means uh, for more than half a century. Mm-hmm. I happen to be I happen to be on the la- on the latter camp. I really do believe that people to people cultural exchanges, educational exchanges would would likely be more productive than um, than the policy of isolation. Now Mike Arisman has been involved with uh with Cuban studies and, and has been involved in, in uh basically exchanges for many years. So, Mike, just as a way of introduction, can you sort of uh, give us your background on on your relationships with Cuba? Well, I started uh, seriously looking at Cuba uh, about the mid-'80s, I would say. Um, I've uh, visited the ILN about 20, 25 times. I haven't kept count. Um, For conferences and research uh, and uh, that type of thing. Um, So... Uh, it's an ongoing relationship. At Indiana State, we do have an academic exchange program with the University of Havana. Uh, we have sent students uh, to Havana on short-term uh, study courses. Um, 
Well, I took a group of uh, faculty there recently interested in learning more about the uh, Cuban public health system. We will be sending another group of students uh, this year uh, to Cuba. So this is kind of, uh, of symptomatic of some of the things that, uh, that uh, um, Arado was talking about in terms of uh, expanded uh, relations in certain areas. Uh, and educational academic areas have been one of those where things have loosened up. At one time, again, depending on the state of relations between the two countries, it might be very difficult uh, to get authorization from the U.S. government to travel to Cuba. The Cubans don't care. <laughs> uh, the U.S. government sometimes has been more strict, uh, less strict. Uh, another problem has been Cuban academics getting visas to come to the United States. Uh, I was co-chair of the, as you mentioned, the uh, Cuba group of the Latin American Studies Association several years ago. And we had, I believe it was 65 uh, Cuban academics wanted to come to the conference here in the U.S. They were all turned down. Everyone mm -hmm. is turned. And some have gotten visas sometimes, and then they've been turned down other times. So it's, it's very hit and miss. Mm -hmm. <laughs> can can uh, the two of you just uh, sort of a, a basic, I guess, Cuba 101, just talk about, you know, what, what's it mean to reestablish di diplomatic ties? I mean, how what's – what's that mean? Just in a general sense. Well, well, very quickly. Mike, yeah. Yeah. Uh, people are saying we've normalized relations with Cuba. We haven't normalized relations with Cuba. There's still a lot of abnormalities, particularly the U.S. economic sanctions uh, that are on Cuba. So what we have done is reestablished uh, diplomatic relations. Uh, in a sense, it's somewhat symbolic. Um, there were diplomatic relations. We had what was called an interest section in Havana. The Cubans had an interest section in Washington, D.C. Uh, and the, the U.S. interest section is in the old embassy in Havana. And now that diplomatic relations have been restored, that interest section will be upgraded again to an embassy. Uh, there are some benefits in terms of it may be easier to carry on uh, uh, negotiations uh, with uh, Cuba. There are, uh, diplomats would have a bit more freedom to uh, travel around, um, but there are some major questions still to be resolved before one can say that the relations are normalized. Mm -hmm. Gerardo, you want to take that? Yeah, well, yeah, well, I was going to say that, you know, I, I agree with Mike that uh, we have, uh, you know, a long, long way to, to go in, in Normalizing, at least the way we think of international, normal international relationship, uh, things with Cuba. But um, over the last year, since December 17th, when the fall was um, simultaneously announced by Presidents Obama and Raul Castro in, in Havana, uh, there, has, there has been a sea change in the way that the relationships uh, have uh, evolved over the last uh, half century. Uh, for example, just this week, the first American uh, bank actually established a contract mm -hmm. with a Cuban bank who, who permit the uh, exchange of, of, of money. Mm -hmm. And that was not possible officially uh, <laughs> to, um, uh, without the, the diplomatic relations. And now the, uh, you know, the agreements that are being, that are being sponsored. The, the travel regulations uh, for U.S. citizens to go to Cuba has been expanded by 
300 percent. I think originally there were four categories of special permits that um, U.S. citizens um, could obtain to travel to Cuba. Now that has been expanded to 12 categories, one of which is a general category, which in effect allows practically anyone who wants to go to Cuba uh, to do so legally, except for tourism, okay, because tourism was prohibited by the embargo. And there are discussions now about lifting even that restriction. So we have seen a dramatic shift uh, just since December to, to now. Cuba was on the list of um, uh, countries that sponsored terrorism, and as a result of the fall, uh, that restriction was lifted, which is in part what led to the uh, uh, agreement, the banking agreement that was just signed. So I think we're, we still have a long way to go, but given the state of relations uh, before the 17th and now, it's, it's a sea change. In fact, Cubans are fond of saying before the 17th and after the 17th. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ger- Gerardo, have you had an opportunity to return to Cuba? Since you yes, left you know, as a child? Well, uh, yes, I, I left um, in 1962, February 1962, and mm-hmm. then I've gone back, um, you know, all the years that I was here. And then in um, May of 2012, the IU Alumni Association asked me to be a host for one of the study tours, cultural study uh, study tours that uh, was permitted on the, what well, led to some of these other changes. And so that was my first time back in May of when I led a, a group of IU alumni in a culture and, and, and a, a social study, people-to-people study tour uh, of the island. And then since then, I was invited to take another group in, um, in October of 2013. So I've been back twice uh, since, since I left as a child. Wow. So talk about that just a little bit, if you would. What was your... Um I guess, most outstanding uh, impression from, from that return trip. It must have been quite emotional. It was. It was. In fact, I, you know, I, I really did not realize how emotional um, it, it would be. I mean, I grew up here. Um, I'm a U.S. citizen. I went to mm-hmm. school here. And while going back to Cuba at some point was always in the back of my mind, and, and it was something that I had some interest in doing. It was something that I was... Uh, driven to do or, or really working hard to do. If when the opportunity presented itself, I would do it and I would be delighted to do it. But mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I was too busy to worry about when that would be. Right. And and when I got there in for the first time in May to 12, um, I mean, even as I, we approached the uh, Jose Marti Airport, which is the airport in Havana, just seeing the royal palm trees that dot the countryside of Cuba just brought up all sorts of memories and emotions. And then uh, once we landed and started interacting with the people and seeing the sights and scenes, it was like a non, non-stop emotional roller coaster. Oh, I bet. Um, because, you know, Cuba, in, in a way, uh, has been frozen in time. And so um, it's like the entire island is a museum. When, when you see those pictures of the... American car, 1950s American cars running around Havana. Those are not, uh, uh, you know, shots that are taken uh, for the press. You can stand in any corner in Havana and see just a little bit, dozens, if not hundreds, of those cars running around. And so, everything about the trip uh, was uh, 
uh, a throwback to my days growing up there, feelings that I had about my family, the, the immigration experience, uh, all of that. I hope you'll write a book. I'd like to read it. I actually am. I'm working on a memoir right now, um, and that was um, um, motivated. Uh, the impetus for it was those feelings that I had and the memories and the experiences that I had as a result of my going back to, to Cuba. And the theme of it is, um, you know, the, how education opened up uh, opportunities for me in this country, uh, but how the foundations, you know, as a Cuban and the family history and the family values uh, mm-hmm. helped me achieve what most of us think is American dream. Hmm. That's great. I'll look forward to reading that. Now, Mike, in your your first trip and, well, subsequent trips, I mean, Gerardo's, uh his description of it is is kind of illuminating. Uh, right. Do you ag- agree with all that? Oh, yes, yes. Certainly some of those cars traveling around Cuba, the 57 Chevys, is probably $100,000 on the hoof, you know, yeah. if they want yeah. to sell them in the U.S. Certainly the Cubans have to be the best auto mechanics in the world to keep them going because they can't get spare parts for right. them. Uh, there's a show on TV right now. It's called Cuban Chrome, which looks at, uh, at an auto club. Uh, down in Cuba and how they keep these cars running and how they restore them and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, d- I did want to say, I, you know, uh, I don't think uh, Gerardo and I disagree too much uh, in, in terms of diplomatic relations. Uh, Cuba's complicated. Cuba's always complicated. Uh, and policy, control of policy is split, okay? You have the executive branch controlling the president, in other words, controlling certain areas of the policy and uh, Congress controlling other areas of the policy, particularly the uh, economic sanctions. So I do think that the restoring diplomatic relations kind of gave, uh, if you will, Obama an opening to exercise some of his authority in terms of, uh, of improving relations and some of the things that, that were mentioned in terms of uh, let, of uh, lightening up on the on the travel restrictions, um, there have been uh, apparently some airlines now that are opening uh, new flights uh, to Cuba. There's a ferry service, I think, that's uh, that's going to start up. Um, so in, in those areas, yes, the administration taking Cuba off of the uh, off of the uh, state sponsors uh, a state that sponsors terrorism a list. All those are executive initiatives mm-hmm. that can be taken. And so there, I think, the reestablishing of, of diplomatic relations uh, simply makes it, I guess, easier, if you, would, if you will. It gives the Obama administration some political space mm-hmm. in order to exercise some of these, some discretion mm-hmm. in this area. Uh, however, <laughs> the economic sanctions, which are a major concern for the Cubans, uh, that is pretty much under control of Congress. Congress would have to agree, pass to pass legislation, in terms of lifting or modifying those sanctions. And at least everything that I've heard and seen, that ain't going to happen. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I do want um, to give our phone numbers again so we can get some more people to call. And we'll get to Valerie here in just a minute before I go, uh, before I talk about this research study. But uh, the numbers are 812 855 811 or toll free 1 877 285 
888-900-9348. And you can also join us on a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Um, you talk about you know Congress and the Pew Research Center just issued a report, some research earlier this, this week, actually July 21st. It says that um, you know 73% of the American people say that they they favor reestablishing diplomatic relations and 72% favor ending the embargo. And when they break it down by political party, um, it's uh, 60, 60 or 56% of Republicans say that they favor reestablishing diplomatic relations and 59% say that they would favor ending the trade embargo. So, and this is, uh, you know, this is, I think it's a, it's a change. Uh, according to the Pew Research Center, it's, it's definitely a change toward acceptance of Cuba uh, from their last study. And I, I think that was uh, in January, perhaps. So um, it seems to be moving in that direction. Well, as I... Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I mean, I definitely agree with Doug there, Bob. Um, you know, it, with the... Uh, uh, with the with the American public opinion uh, uh, now being Paul and Express, we're measuring something, the sentiment that has been there um, for a while, even though we weren't talking much about it. But there are a lot of industry groups in the U.S., agriculture, for example, uh, manuf- various forms of manufacturing, who would love to have access to the Cuban market. We, you know, mm-hmm. Cuba's only 90 miles away from from Key West, and, and Cubans love American culture, and there's always been a cultural bond going back uh, centuries between the Cuban people and the American people. And so I think that this thorn relationships is going to benefit not only the Cuban people, we hope, in terms of better economic development and greater freedoms, uh, but also the, the American uh, uh, people and, and the business community in ways that uh, uh, we will not be able to, to see because of the embargo and some of the uh, policies. Well, again, I agree. The business community has, has long wanted to, uh, to get rid of the sanctions, to get rid of the embargo. Uh, again, it's interesting that some of the leaders there have been agricultural interests from conservative Midwestern states that are Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Uh, indeed, I think a couple years ago, a farm group from uh, Indiana went down and kind of uh, made some tentative contracts. Uh, you know, if the embargo is lifted, then this would open the way for export of agricultural goods. Uh, so that business community has uh, has been there for years, really. Uh, pushing this idea. Uh, I, I guess I'm a little bit pessimistic uh, because what I tell my students is it's easier to stop something from happening in Congress than to make it happen. <laughs> a, a minority can throw, you know, uh, throw, can mess up the whole process. So I don't disagree with your, uh, with your um, poll results there. But the question is, where does power lie uh, within the Congress, and to what extent can that power be used to, in a sense, frustrate uh, Mm -hmm. what is, you know, a favorable majority, Mm -hmm. both in the public and in Congress, Mm -hmm. for ending the embargo? We're going to have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to have a caller, Valerie, on the line. Uh, But you're listening to Noon Edition as we talk about uh, the the major national international news of reestablishing relationships with Cuba. Um, You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. 
This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Uh, today we have two guests with us, and we're talking about the United States and Cuba. In the studio is Michael Erisman, a professor emeritus of international politics in Latin America uh, at Indiana State University. He serves as co-chair of the Working Group on U.S.-Cuban Relations, which operates under the Latin American Association. And on the phone, we have Gerardo Gonzalez, a former dean of the Indiana University School of Education. Uh, his family immigrated from Cuba when he was young, and he now serves as the university's director of efforts to reach out to Cuban higher education institutions. If you want to join us, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or one 877 285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. And you can even follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So Valerie's been very patient on the phone. Valerie, we appreciate that. Um, you it, it says here that you've been to Cuba a couple of times as a researcher. You want to talk um, about yeah, that? I was actually employed at IU in the uh, Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies. I worked there from 1996 until... I don't know, 1999. And uh, one day, just in the course of my work, I guess I was basically the only full-time, other than the director, I was, you know, I basically was it in terms of staff, uh, secretary, and everything else. And so I answered the phone, and a professor uh, whose name is Artemis Kiefer, who taught at IUPUI at that time, we got talking on the phone, and I don't even remember what he called about, but in the conversation, he says to me, you know, do you want to go to Cuba? <laughs> and at the time, you know, I had the kind of reaction most people probably would have had back then. Why would I want to go to Cuba? And he apparently had been to Cuba numerous times doing research. And so we kind of, you know, the next year or sometime later, uh, well, what happened was, and I'll, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version, uh, quite by chance I ended up reading a book um, when I was locked in the library at the Center for Latin American Studies, uh, monitoring some master's students doing their written exam, and you know there were a lot of books on the shelf, and I pulled a book off the shelf called uh, Los Pensamientos del Che, which for those of you who don't know Spanish is like I don't know how you how you translate pensamientos, but you know thoughts basically or philosophies of Che Guevara and. It was in Spanish, and, you know, I knew some Spanish, and during my time there monitoring this exam, I pretty much read the book cover to cover and got pretty fascinated by Che. And so from there, I started reading about the 
Cuban Revolution. And to make a long story short, the next time Artemis Kiefer called and said, you want to go to Cuba? I said, you bet. I do it. So every summer he took a group of students as part of his research team. And so I signed on to go with him and started doing some research about, you know, background stuff and attended his class in Indianapolis. And uh, my point is that one of my major points is that through my research and my experience and knowledge about Cuba, I think if anyone really wants to understand the relationship between our government and Cuba, you need to go way back, at least until 1898 and the so-called Spanish-American War. And you really have to go back further than that to understand the, the ongoing struggle of the Cuban people to win their independence. And then when you look at the U.S. intervening, at the last minute in that struggle and taking all the credit and basically taking over and pretty much occupying Cuba from that point on. And I can't, is it, was it the Platt Amendment that basically gave us the right to intervene in Cuban affairs, you know, on any whim? Anyway, it's, it's a long, long story of U.S. hegemony in another nation's business. And I think, you know, you also need to look at our policies toward Latin America overall. And when you get that kind of history, I mean, you know, this relationship way predates Fidel Castro in 1959. And, and um, the conclusion I came away with was that, and I think Fidel actually said this at one point, is the problem is they just can't accept that we succeeded with the socialist revolution right under their noses. And it reminds me of a bad divorce in which one partner has been very domineering. The other partner finally manages to break loose, but the domineering partner just won't leave him alone. (laughs) And, you know, with this embargo and this, you know, blah, blah, you know, trading with the enemy act and all this, you know, this was in the 1950s, you know, right around the big fear of communism and... You know, the whole story. I mean, I'm in my there's 60s. A, there's a great book, a, a recent book, called uh, Bacardi and the Fight for Cuban Independence. That um, really is a fascinating read of some of that historical development and relationships between Cuba and the United States and, and, and addresses many of the things that Valerie uh, is talking about. Uh, this is a long history. In fact, I think that U.S. history and Cuban history is just intimately intertwined. I don't think you can separate one from the other. All you have to do is look at the little Havana neighborhoods in, in Miami now, and look at Cuban migration. I mean, it's this is intimately intertwined. And there, there, uh, there are lots of things that led to where we are today, but the promise of the revolution, the, the idea of... Um, of a socialist uh, um, utopia where everybody uh, will live in peace and in a classless society where everyone will contribute to the better of society uh, simply never materialized. Um, in fact, one of the sad things that I saw going back to Cuba for the first time in 50 years is that um, the very uh, foundations of the revolution, which were to create a classless society, uh, in a total failure, because now in Cuba you basically have two classes of people: those who have access 
two crooks, which is a Cuban convertible person, which is back to the dollar, and it is the tourist industry, and those who don't have access to crooks. And they're like two different societies. And hmm. we now have, you know, um, uh, inequality, uh, income inequality, mostly tied to whether or not you work in the in the tourist industry. And so, you know, there's a lot to be said for how we create a better, better world and what can lead to peaceful coexistence. But they have really been failures on both sides. I think the embargo clearly has been a, a terrible failure, a failed policy. Uh, but so has been this idea that uh, you can um, expand and, and export uh, uh, socialism and uh, around the world, because obviously that, uh, that hasn't happened either. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think as Americans, we need to remember that just because we have not been uh, allowed to uh, participate in tourism in Cuba doesn't mean that people from other countries have, you know, have, they have been um, visiting throughout this, uh, what, 50-some year period. Right. Okay, exactly. That's what, that's what I'm getting at is that, uh, you know, the, the tour, tourism has now become the number one industry in Cuba. Mm-hmm. That is the number one source of of um, hard currency in Cuba, um, maybe second only by remittances from Cuban-American families who live in the U.S. and send money to relatives in, in Cuba. Those are the two largest sources of, uh, of income or hard currency uh, for the Cuban government. And even before the fall, before Americans uh, started to go there in the large numbers that, that we're seeing today, the industry the tourism industry was already a growing sector in Cuba, and that led to, uh, to class divisions. Those who have jobs in the tourism industry or access to, to dollars or cooks, like I said, whether it be uh, euros or Canadian dollars mm-hmm. or any other kind of hard currency, uh, started to develop a different lifestyle than those who didn't. And so the promise of, a, of an utopian society where everybody was equal, there was no class struggle, and the resources would be equally shared for the good of the society. It just simply never materialized. Mike's got a few comments I think he wants to make about uh, about the economy and about uh, maybe the history and what right. Valerie was talking about. Well, I, I had to disagree with Geraldo uh, on one thing. The Actually, the greatest source of, uh, of uh, income outside the country for Cuba now is health services. Uh, Cubans have 50,000 health professionals spread out all over the world. Uh, this is a program that goes back really to the beginning of the revolution. Uh, and at one time, these Cuban uh, medical professionals, uh, they were sent to other countries free of charge. It was a foreign aid program, uh, if you will. Uh, when Raul Castro came in, he changed that somewhat. and now. While not everybody is asked to pay, those countries that are, can pay are asked to, uh, asked to contribute something to these services. It's, it's still a bargain, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to what it might cost if you're getting that from uh, Western countries. Uh, but about $8 billion came in uh, last year uh, through the uh, Cuban medical services abroad. The, the big deal is uh, with Venezuela, where there's kind of a doctors for oil uh, program. Uh, tourism is is big. It's probably the second biggest. 
what one has to recognize is there's a lot of leakage in the tourist industry. In other words, most tourist dollars do not stay in the host country, okay? Mm. Uh, when people go to Cuba, they don't travel on Cuba, Cuban airlines, okay? So Canadians who go to Cuba fly Canadian airlines. Uh, many of the hotels are foreign-owned uh, hotels. So the, the, the statistics are about 60 to percent of the total tourist dollars. Uh, tourists spend $100, that's stupid, but $100 uh, on, a, on a trip, $60 uh, will not stay in the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a problem there. I agree with Geraldo in terms of the social impact uh, of tourism, and a lot of Cubans are worried about that. Some Cubans I talked about in my last trip were not particularly enthusiastic mm -hmm. about the idea of a flood of American tourists mm -hmm. coming in. And whether Cuba can handle that is another question also. Mm -hmm. Going back to what Valerie says, I agree this has been a very checkered uh, relationship. Um, uh, and one of the things I think we've underestimated in the United States is Cuban nationalism. Cubans are very nationalistic. They do not like to be pushed around. Whether one is a supporter or an opponent of the revolution, they still will tend to react very negatively to some outside country trying to dictate to them. And, and this was a problem for a long time with normalizing relations. Uh, the U.S. would put preconditions on normalization. No, we're not going to talk about normalization until you do this, this, and this. And basically, Cubans said, forget it. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not doing it. Uh, you're not going to dictate that sort of thing to us. Uh, there's a, you know, there was a heavy emphasis on mutual respect, respect for sovereignty. Uh, so I think the, the reestablishing of diplomatic relations uh, does kind of address that concern. It takes that element of tension, that element of, of suspicion uh, out of the relationship. In other words, now I think the Cubans would say, yes, we've been diplomatically recognized. Uh, this is a gesture of respect. It's a, uh, it's a recognition of our sovereignty that uh, you cannot dictate to us this, that, or the other thing. It has to be on the basis of negotiations and negotiations between equals. Mm -hmm. um, both Fidel and Raul have emphasized that. We'll negotiate but we have to negotiate as equals. Yeah. Yeah. All right, our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington and 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. I'd like to hear from, from each of you gentlemen, what, what are your hopes and fears regarding how Cuba will change as a result of reestablished diplomatic ties? I imagine that you have uh, some of each, is that right, Gerardo? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, my hope is that um, the Cuban people would, would enjoy um, a better standard of living. Um, the conditions in Cuba uh, have been very, uh, very trying uh, for, for many years, and I think there's a, there's a real hope and desire to be able to live in a place where um, they can benefit, individuals, if the common people can benefit from the fruits of their, of their labor. And that has not been possible for a variety of reasons. The other thing I hope will happen is that there will be greater uh, freedom, that uh, the Cuban people will be able to speak uh, um, their mind, uh, express their opinions, have some um, level of freedom of, of speech uh, available uh, to them. 
and there are signs already that uh, what we think of or what we call in Cuba the civil society, people that are being critical of the government and, and calling for change, even within the system, uh, are, get, are gaining a greater voice. And, and so I hope that as a result of the uh, relations of the economic development, which the benefit the common people, uh, who really have suffered the most under the embargo and these kinds of um, wrong-headed policies, and at the same time that they will bring uh, greater freedoms and be uh, able to more freely participate as, as world citizens in, in, a, global, in a global community. Uh, the fear is that um, they will lose some of that nationalism that Michael was talking about, that, uh, you know, they, they, uh, the tourist industry, for example, will, will uh, carry the island in, in a direction that uh, may not necessarily be uh, what's in the best interest of, of Cuba. But, but I do think that historically Cubans have been very nationalistic, and they will struggle to maintain those things that they value now while at the same time uh, hoping to achieve some of the benefits of improved uh, relations with the U.S. and, and be a great participant in the, in the world community. Okay. Michael? Right. Well, I would suspect that the greatest impact uh, would be uh, in the economic, the most immediate impact of fully normalizing relations mm -hmm. would be in the uh, economic realm. In, in terms of, of a better standard of living uh, for, the, uh, for the Cuban people, uh, kind of a something lurking in the background here that a lot of people don't know about is that there is indications that there are massive oil reserves <laughs> off the coast of Cuba. Okay, now it's hard to get at. It's mm. deep water. They've drilled some test uh, wells already, and because of uh, technical problems, hard rock and everything like that, they have not been able to bring in any commercial wells. But if they can develop that oil, if it's there in the, if the estimates are correct, if it's there in the scope that they talk about and they can get the technological expertise to get at it, that could be a real game changer mm -hmm. in terms of the, uh, of the Cuban economy. That sounds like that could fall under hope and fear. Yes. <laughs> uh, and if you normalize, the, if you get rid of the economic embargo, that would allow U.S. oil companies to bring their technology to bear uh, in order to help to try and develop this. So these are, you know, some of the imponderables mm -hmm. that are sitting out there, and nobody really knows what, obviously, what the total impact will be in terms of the political uh, reforms or political changes. Again, that's... I think the United States has to tread very carefully there. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is something that has to be determined by the Cubans. Uh, if they are pressured to do this, that, or the other thing, you may very well see this kind of digging in their heels and saying, you're not going to tell us how to, uh, how to run our country mm -hmm. uh, politically. Uh, under Raul, I think there have been reforms. Things have loosened up. Cubans I talk to can be very critical very uh, vociferous. Uh, the extent to which that is maybe publicly expressed is another thing. Uh, at one time, Castro, talking about free speech, Fidel Castro said, uh, within the revolution, anything outside the revolution, nothing. 
Uh, <laughs> what he meant there was constructive criticism is accepted, but if it's criticism, uh, basically uh, to to do, do away with the revolution, uh, we're not interested in hearing that or allowing that. So <laughs> there. Well, I was going to say, but that's exactly my point is that I think even even the changes that we've already been able to to observe. Uh, would lead me to conclude that the people themselves are already feeling more empowered to be critical of the government. Not necessarily that they're willing to to overthrow the government, but they are being more outspoken. They are pointing out where the uh, problems are. Uh, the problem with with the centralized economy. We're seeing privatization and a real desire for entrepreneurs to. Within the rules established by the government, uh, establish businesses and try to, to benefit uh, economically in ways that were not possible uh, before. So while it won't be a dramatic change from today to tomorrow, um, I think that the, the signs are already clear that, that, that Cuba, because of the people that live there, not because of necessarily because of American policy or external forces, are already moving in the, in the direction of, of greater privatization, more uh, uh, political um, criticism where, where, where appropriate. And while there's still repression and there are still, uh, people are still not free to, to speak their mind politically the way that many would uh, like to have this movement in that direction. And I think that's the, that's the encouraging thing. Uh, and what would come out of it, in my opinion, is something that would be uniquely Cuban. I mean, Cuban is, um, uh, is as, as Mike said, uh, Michael said earlier, uh, an intensely nationalistic uh, nation. And uh, something uh, that would emerge that would be uh, hopefully better for the Cuban citizens, but also very much Cuban. I, th- I think we're going to get a better fix on this. In several years, uh, Raul Castro said at the end of this presidency, he is going to step aside. Uh, then the question, of course, that everybody's talking about, well, who is going to be the uh, next president? Uh, and I think as that process plays, its, plays out, one can perhaps get a, a better view. Uh, we kind of know what the economic problems are. We kind of know what the economic consequences of this, that, and the other thing would be. Uh, the political situation is a bit more murky, and a lot of it goes on behind closed doors, if you will. Uh, but uh, if indeed Raul does step aside, uh, then the whole process of replacing him, how he is replaced, who replaces him, I think will tell us something about the political direction that the country may be taking. Hmm. Uh, you know, in the, in the light of growing global terrorism and the timing on all this. I'm wondering, is anybody accusing the United States of, of this being a case of keep your friends close and your enemies closer? I haven't, I haven't heard that. I mean, the, uh, the U.S. Cuban governments have had um, already discussions about ways to fight uh, uh, illegal uh, drug um, uh, trafficking, and they even have discussions about ways to, to fight uh, terrorism. Now, you know, the interpretations of the Cuban government and the U.S. government about what is terrorism may differ. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the reasons why Cuba was taken off the list of uh, governments that um, 
support uh, uh, terrorism is because they have been able to document that they have uh, actually collaborated with the U.S. government in some areas that um, we would certainly consider, um, uh, if not terrorism, uh, ways to support uh, illicit and illegal activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the fact that there were no diplomatic relations does not mean that there weren't any agreements between Cuba and the United States. Uh, as as uh, Jarella mentioned, uh, there has been cooperation uh, in uh, the drug area. Uh, there's been cooperation on, on migration, trying to get agreements to um, make a more orderly uh, migration. Uh, the two militaries have... Uh, uh, cooperated with one another uh, mm-hmm. on occasion. So it's not like there was nothing mm-hmm. uh, there. There were these areas of mutual interest where there was cooperation. Obviously, the hope today is that uh, those areas of mutual interest will expand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the establishment of diplomatic relations, I think, is kind of a first step in doing that. And it sounds like common goals yeah met or come to as equals if, uh, we have just a few minutes to go but you, if you have a short question or short answer <laughs> we can probably get it in 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348 and you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition i wanted to ask both of you uh since you really it sounds like both of you are really the point person in a lot of ways for your university in terms of um, taking advantage of the new opportunities that have arisen through these, the, the opening of these relationships. Um, what's it mean, or what are what are your hopes for IU, uh, Gerardo, and for Indiana State, Michael, in terms of uh, the next few years in in, in relationship to Cuba, uh, Gerardo? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited, Bob, that uh, IU was one of 12 universities nationwide that was selected to, to participate in the. Uh, Institute for International Education, uh, uh, International Academic uh, Programs uh, Partnership. And that means that we will be taking a study tour of Cuban educational institutions and meeting with government officials in um, uh, the late September of October. They haven't finalized the base to begin to identify um, potential institutions that would be peer um uh, partners with uh, with IU, and so I think the learning about how those partnerships come about and begin to build on uh, quite a few activities that have already been going on uh, will be very exciting, and being part of an organized group and being able to have a delegation from IU there on the ground talking to uh, peers and to different kinds of governmental officials and institutions is going to open up a lot of doors in an area that uh, will produce uh, very uh, potentially very fertile results. That's so exciting. We have about two minutes, Michael. Well, yeah, very quickly, I agree with what Geraldo has uh, has said there. Uh, I think probably initially the greatest potential, at least in the educational area, is with uh, faculty kinds of exchanges. That's not to say that you can't have students visiting, but they tend to be short-term things, and and you don't necessarily get any long-term relationship uh, as a basis of those. One of the problems, of course, uh, well, in academic exchanges, you would hope maybe you could bring some uh, Cuban students here, but that would have to be with scholarships that Cubans cannot afford (laughs) (laughs) that come Uh to the U.S. and and pay uh, that that kind of uh, uh, tuition. Um, 
there are some American students studying in Cuba. I've been to Elam, which is a Latin American medical school, and there are U.S. students who study at uh, Elam. Um, so the, the foundation is there. It's just a matter of building on that foundation, and hopefully, I. How do I want to say this? Do it very politely. Mm-hmm. Cuba can be rather bureaucratic <laughs> sometimes, and things don't necessarily move as quickly as you would like them to. So you have to be patient, and you have to hang in there. Yeah, I want to mention before we go off the air, um, we hadn't mentioned yet that Bloomington, the city of Bloomington actually has a sister city relationship mm-hmm. in Cuba. And if you want to know more about that, I'm sure you could go to the city's website and find out all about that relationship. So uh, that's it for today, but I really want to thank uh, both of our guests, Michael Erisman and Gerardo Gonzalez. Thank you both for joining us. It's been a fascinating conversation about the U.S. and Cuba relationships. For my co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael, and for producer Alexander McCall and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu.